My name is Shaniqua Williams, and I have the pleasure of introducing Dr. Shaniqua Walker-Barnes to you this morning. Uh, yesterday, we had our Black Women's Luncheon, and I have to say it made my heart very glad to see nearly 100 women um, in our lobby. In our lobby in the gathering place, uh, and I just was so thankful that we not only had our own our church home to have this event, uh, but also that we were able to accommodate so many women from the community. Um, Leah uh, and I had a chance to talk after, and Leah kind of described it as, it's just the beginning. So I said, we started with the author. That seems like a really big high, but it's just the beginning of our work that we're going to be doing here at the sanctuary and creating a space for black women to have these conversations. So like I said, I have the pleasure of introducing Dr. Shaniqua Walker-Barnes, who is an associate professor of Practical Theology at the Mercer University McAvee School of Theology and the author of Too Heavy a Yoke, Black Women and the Burden and Strength. I'd encourage you to get the book if you have it. A prophetic voice for healing, justice, and reconciliation. Her personal mission is to dismantle white supremacist heteropatriarchy while practicing good self-care. An ordained ecumenical minister, she is currently working on her second book, Disrupting Racial Reconciliation. Sanctuary, join me in welcoming Dr. Walker Barnes. Thank you, sis. Good morning, Sanctuary. It is a pleasure to be here with you Again, just a little while ago, um, I was over in the office and I came over here and Dr. May and Mike were looking for me over there, um, but I'm at home. So I was just, I was like, I think I'm going back over now. Um, yeah, I have to say I had high hopes coming here. Um, high hopes indeed about the place that this would be about it being really a, a beacon of light in a polarized world, an example that God's children can come together across race and gender and nationality and class, and that we can come together in a way that doesn't force everybody to fit in the same mold, doesn't say everybody needs to conform to this way of behaving. We saw that today with the dedication and baptism, right? That there are different ways that we can be together in the same space and that God's heart is big enough for those differences and we need to be big enough for those differences. We don't have to deny our difference, but we have to learn how to love each other and we have to learn how to grow together. So I'm just really grateful and honored to be in this space, grateful for the invitation, for the love that I have felt here since I came here, for um, Dr. May, who has just been a beautiful and wonderful servant um, even before we came, before I came here. She contacted me a while ago and um, she said, now I want you to know we're living into the spirit of your book, so you're not doing anything other than the part you're supposed to do. We're going to serve you. I'm so grateful for that. Grateful that you all, as a congregation of diverse people, understood also the need sometimes for people of color to gather together in safe space um, to nurture one another and to speak to the specific needs of our communities um, so that we can continue to do this intercultural work. So I'm really, truly appreciative of that and just the worship. Um, I thank you for that. Um, I, you know, 
when we drove up and I saw that the church office was next to the liquor store, I was like, uh, I like these people. <laughs> these my kind of Christians. And then like the, the shades, I was like, we get to look at the neighborhood while we worshiping, right? We are not trying to drown out the neighborhood that we're not saying we're a sanctuary away from the neighborhood, but it's a sanctuary in the midst of the neighborhood. Man. So, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm at home. I'm at home. So I'm, I'm grateful. And we're going to get into this text. And um, let me read this text. So this, this text today, I'm coming from Song of Songs, the, the first chapter, verses 5 through 7. And I'm going to be reading from the Common English Bible. Dark am I and lovely, daughters of Jerusalem, like the black tents of the Kadar nomads, like the curtains of Solomon's palace. Don't stare at me because I'm darkened by the sun's gaze. My own brothers were angry with me. They made me a caretaker of the vineyards, but I couldn't care for my own vineyards. Tell me, you whom I love with all my heart, where do you pasture your flock? Where do you rest them at noon so I don't wander around with the flocks of your companions? Let us pray. Lord God Almighty, we feel you in this space. We know that you are here. You have been here. You have brought us to this place. We thank you for the work that you're doing here at Sanctuary the work that you're doing here in North Minneapolis for the leadership, for the people of this congregation. And Lord, we ask right now that you would just give all of us a word, that you would speak through me in spite of me, that the word that each of us needs to hear today we will receive and we will take it with us as we go forward from this place. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. When I was a, a teenager, my grandmother, she began working for um, Dark and Lovely as one of their representatives. Back then, Dark and Lovely would send women out into stores like Kmart. This was pre-Target. Um, and so it'd be Kmart. And maybe back then, I think we might have even had Zares. I don't know if you all had Zares. Um, and, and she would go out with, these, with this cart and it'd have all her signs and samples. And she'd go into the store and set up an exhibit table and spend the next few hours encouraging people to buy dark and lovely shampoos and moisturizers, their styling products and their dyes. I don't know that she really did anything successful other than get all her daughters and granddaughters to constantly beg her for samples because um, we just felt like we don't have to buy anything else because grandma works for Dark and Lovely. Um, but Dark and Lovely was always a bit of a paradox for me. It was a little bit puzzling. On the one hand, I loved how they celebrated the beauty of black women. The models featured on dark and lovely packaging were unambiguously black. They had rich brown skin tones that spanned kind of the color spectrum. 
And they affirmed that black was indeed beautiful during a time when it was rare for us to see black women portrayed on TV as beautiful. But the irony was that Dark and Lovely used these images to convince black women and girls with deep, rich brown skin tones that we could and should tame our kinky and curly locks. It promised us that with the right products, with their products, we could achieve the Eurocentric beauty standard of long, straight, and silky hair. We could be dark and lovely for sure, but only if we managed to tone down some of our blackness. I get a similar feeling of unease and puzzlement when I read this text from Song of Songs. Now, truthfully, the entirety of Song of Songs is puzzling. Biblical scholars don't really know what to make of this text. They don't know its context, where it was written, why, by whom, for what purpose. There's no widespread agreement about it. Some people aren't even sure that it's about God. One pastor I I, I know, he told me he wasn't even sure it should be in the Bible. That he felt like, really, this is just a love song between two lovers and it doesn't even mention God. So why should it be there? There's only one passage from Song of Songs that appears in the three-year cycle of the Revised Common Lectionary. Most of us don't really know what to do with it other than to use it in the occasional wedding liturgy. For the most part, we act as though it doesn't exist. But I am also intrigued by this book of scripture, especially this passage where this unnamed female protagonist confronts what seems to be a hostile audience. We don't know much about these daughters of Jerusalem that she addresses, but it's clear from this passage that they do not share her dark skin. The NRSV tells us that her skin is not just dark, but black. And it appears that the daughters of Jerusalem disdain her for it. Perhaps they wonder what curse has come upon the woman or her family or her people to make her skin so dark. Or maybe they have heard the rumors about her lover and they wonder how such a desirable man could want someone like her. She is a misfit among the daughters of Jerusalem and she feels the ridicule in their gaze so much so that she feels the need to offer an apologetic for her appearance and maybe even for her existence. Don't stare at me because I'm darkened by the sun's gaze. My own brothers were angry with me. They made me a caretaker of the vineyards, but I couldn't care for my own vineyard. There are a lot of strong black women in recovery in this room who know something about taking care of other people's vineyards. Our protagonist implores our audience, her audience, to see her not just as someone to help, but to see her as she sees herself dark and lovely. Or is it dark but lovely? Because translation matters after all, and with this passage, it matters a lot. 
Both the Common English Bible and the NRSV, the New Revised Standard Version, they join the terms dark and lovely together as if they naturally belong together. The CEB says, dark am I and lovely. The NRSV seems to take its cue from the 1970s and says, I am black and beautiful. But there are other translations that don't seem to know what to make of these terms and they present them almost as if they are conflicting, as if they are themselves a paradox. The NIV says, dark am I yet lovely. And the New King James says, I am dark but lovely. Even the message, which is a contemporary translation, seems to struggle with the notion that dark skin might indeed be lovely. It says, I am weathered, but still elegant. They just don't even want to deal with the darkness at all. (laughs) Just get that darkness right on out of there. Dark, but lovely. It's a subtle turn of phrase. But it implies that even in the late 20th century, when many of these translations were were done, the biblical translators, who are mostly middle-aged white men, they had difficulty reconciling beauty with blackness. And it is a familiar sentiment even now for us, nearly two decades into the 21st century, when it seems like every day we get a reminder that many Americans, including many who call themselves Christians, do not see blackness as beautiful or intelligent or successful or innocent or vulnerable. We might look at ourselves and see each other and ourselves with beauty, but many people, including those who call themselves Christians, They see blackness as threat, danger, criminality, and incompetence. Like our protagonist brothers, they see us as people to be controlled and contained, exploited by our labor, forced to serve their interests, and otherwise kept out of sight. They want us to be the mammies who care for their children and their aging parents, The strong black women who carry the load at work without receiving the rewards for our labor. The sexually vulnerable girls whom their sons can traffic and abuse while their daughters wear promise rings. They want us to amuse and entertain them with our artistry, to make money for their sports teams with our bodies, and to prop up their struggling small town economies by filling their for-profit prisons. They want us to be the face of diversity at their schools and churches as long as we remain silent and away from positions of authority. And they want us to focus on unity and reconciliation even as they don their Make America Great Again hats and their Confederate flags and their tiki torches. Now, I usually find comfort in scripture that connects to what we're going on through today. But I have a hard time finding comfort in the fact that our sister experienced the same kind of discrimination that we experience today. We know that race is a modern 
construct, right? And we talk about there's no race in the Bible. There's no black or white in the Bible. But here, this sister feels that her darkness is something that needs to be explained, to be rationalized, and to require grace. I can't help but wonder if the real reason the daughters of Jerusalem are so discomforted by her appearance is not because she is so dark, but because she refused to stay hidden away with her darkness. I find it hard to believe that people in her area didn't know about the abuse that she was sustaining. Surely they had to have seen her out in the vineyards. Surely they knew that this was unusual behavior. And it seems to me that the real reason the daughters of Jerusalem are uncomfortable is because she was confronting them with the oppression that they already knew about and didn't want to face. I am deeply bothered that thousands of years after this text was written, and after what seemed like some stride, some progress on America's race issue, Black and brown peoples in the U.S. are still offering apologetics for our existence and still trying to make our oppressors comfortable with our suffering. And if I can be completely honest, I must confess that I am heartbroken that so often in the midst of our suffering, just like in Song of Songs, God seems not to be present. God does not speak in this book of the Bible. Now, I know this is an odd text to preach in the season of Easter when we're supposed to be like in the New Testament and feeling the joy of the resurrection. But since the murder of Trayvon Martin in 2013, it seems like every time we try to get to Resurrection Sunday, white supremacy pulls us back to Good Friday. The litany of names seems unending. Jonathan Farrell, Miriam Carey, Yvette Smith, Eric Garner, Michael Brown, Kajim Powell, Ezell Ford, John Crawford, Akai Gurley, Laquan McDonald, Tamir Rice, Anthony Hill, Walter Scott, Samuel Dubose, Alton Sterling, Philando Castile, Tyree King, Terrence Crutcher, Sandra Bland, Keith Lamont Hill, Jordan Edwards, Charlena Lyles, Joyce Carnell, Freddie Gray, Corinne Gaines, Stefan Clark, and this is only a handful. The stone might be rolled away, but we keep getting pulled back in the tomb. Another unarmed black woman, man, or child becomes a hashtag after being killed by police. We're back in the tomb. A white domestic terrorist receives bond after murdering four young people of color in cold blood at a Waffle House. We're back in the tomb. 
Black people getting arrested for waiting at Starbucks or asking for plastic utensils at Waffle House or playing too slowly on the golf course. We are back in the tomb. An elderly black woman dies of emphysema just two days after being in a Florida courtroom where she is verbally abused and refused her breathing treatment by the judge. We are back in the tomb. So often to me lately, it seems like we're the ones stuck in the tomb and Jesus is out there on the Emmaus road, frolicking around, having fun with no concern for us at all. And like the psalmist, I want to cry out, how long, O Lord? I wonder how many more centuries our people will be persecuted because of the color of our skin. We're like the guy in the Verizon commercial going from place to place saying, God, can you hear me now? And it seems like we must have a bad connection or our battery is dead because we don't seem to be getting a response. Except here, dark am I and lovely. Our protagonist stares in the face of a hostile audience and she, declared, she, she dares to proclaim her own beauty, her own worth, her own value. Her words seem to be a precursor to the sermon preached by Baby Suggs and Toni Morrison's Beloved. And if you've seen the, the film or better yet read the book, you remember that when Baby Suggs takes the people into the clearing and says, here in this place, we flesh, flesh that weeps, laughs, flesh that dances on bare feet and grass. Love it. Love it hard. Yonder, they do not love your flesh. They despise it. They don't love your eyes. They just as soon pick them out. No more do they love the skin on your back. Yonder, they flay it. And oh, my people, they do not love your hands, those they only use, tie, bind, chop off and leave empty. Love your hands. Raise them up and kiss them. Touch others with them, pat them together, stroke them on your face. Because they don't love that either. You got to love it. You. And no, they ain't in love with your mouth. Yonder out there, they will see it broken and break it again. What you say out of it, they will not heed. What you scream from it, they do not hear. What you put in it to nourish your body, they will snatch away and give you leavings instead. No, they don't love your mouth. You got to love it. This is flesh I'm talking about. Flesh. Flesh that needs to be loved, feet that need to rest and to dance, backs that need support, shoulders that need arms, strong arms, I'm telling you. And all oh, my people out yonder, hear me. They do not love your neck unnoosed and straight. So love your neck. Put a hand on it, grace it, stroke it, and hold it up. And all your inside parts that they just as soon slop for hogs, 
You got to love them. The dark, dark liver, love it, love it. And the beat and beating heart, love that too. More than eyes or feet, more than lungs that have yet to draw free air. More than your life holding womb and your life giving private parts. Hear me now. Love your heart for this is the prize. Dark am I and lovely. It seems to me to be an affirmation of this woman's love for her flesh, for her dark, dark liver, and for her beat and beating heart. In the midst of a death-dealing environment, where people view her as an, only as an object to be used or scorned, she has learned to love her flesh. Dark am I and lovely. It is an affirmation of what the praise team sang for us earlier in my father's house. There's a place for me. I'm a child of God. Yes, I am. Dark am I and lovely. It is the scriptural precursor to James Brown 1960s anthem, Say It Loud, I'm Black and I'm Proud. It is a psychological and spiritual corrective to the internalized oppression that comes from living in a world that does not love black and brown and red and yellow and female and gay and transgender flesh. It is a reminder for us and for others that we are indeed wonderfully and beautifully made in the image of God. It reinscribes humanity and dignity where others only see shame and inferiority. It asserts agency where others only see powerlessness. Dark am I and lovely. It is the affirmation of James Cone's statement. James Cone, the father of black liberation theology who died a few days ago. Who taught us that it was okay to be unashamedly black and unapologetically Christian who said that the beauty in black existence is just as real as the brutality. And the beauty prevents the brutality from having the final word. Dark am I and lovely reveals the mystery of the experience of oppressed peoples. And it tells us how we managed to survive with a measure of dignity when we were not meant to. Dark am I and lovely. It is the cry of resistance that emanates from our souls when we proclaim that black lives matter and that no human is illegal. It subverts the power structure, transforming the labels that others would use to deride us, to debase us. 
It is a public declaration that we refuse to play the game by the rules that have been established by our oppressors, that we refuse to bow down and to succumb to a hostile culture. Dark am I and lovely. It is not just a rebuke, but it is an invitation for our privileged brothers and sisters into a new way of seeing and being. It invites them to end their complicity with our suffering, to stop demanding our silence, and to stand alongside us in our struggle for justice. Dark am I and lovely. It is an exhortation that as the organizers of Black Lives Matter tell us, it is our duty to fight for our freedom. It is our duty to win. We must love and support one another. We have nothing to lose but our chains. Well, look at that. Maybe God is in that text after all. Amen. Amen.